Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, slowly but surely, contemplating how to fill the picture frames on my <laughs> walls that sit behind me empty with each episode slowly, enticing the reader to wonder, what will he put in them next week? What will the collection grow to? I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what goes in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know what I'm going to put in them, but I'm just too lazy to actually do it. Uh, isn't that the way of things? Mm-hmm. I have an entire pile of, of, of pictures, which have been sitting next to my, my chair for like, I'm going to say a solid four months that I literally, I have the command strips. I have mm-hmm. the pictures. I just need to put them up. And yet here I am not putting them Isn't up. Isn't it more fun when they kind of sit in like a cluttered pile by the side of your desk though? Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of fun. People come over and you show them, here's what could be in my walls. This is what could make right. this, this area look a little nicer, but it lets them know that you have untapped potential though. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, well, I'm Cameron Lalana, and this week I have had a very quiet New Year's, not to date our episode, uh, but uh, because we are sheltering in place, because uh, be careful what you wish for. California's been in drought for like the last 20 years, and really, apparently, either we get drought or we get flooding. So uh, because of shelter in place orders, I am now uh, stuck in place. And I cannot, I mean, I can leave my apartment, but um I can look out the window right now and see the trees are shifting because of the wind outside. And when when my iPhone is like, hey, there's like 50 mile an hour winds outside, I think maybe I should believe it. Sure. I just think you're kind of lucky because I was thinking for a really long time before this podcast about what I was going to say for this week. And I had to pick kind of a cop out one because my state doesn't give me freebies like that. It's too bad. That's the one of the fun, fun things about California. Just sunshine, kombucha. Natural disaster. Natural disaster. It's just another day in the big in the big fornia, as we yep, say. Yep. Yeah, Illinois, their like tourism slogan they're trying to brand now is the center of everything, which is such a fucking <laughs> lie. But <laughs> California is it could be like center of the disaster. <laughs> I think California's is, hey, we're ready for an earthquake. <laughs> Don't ask about the other ones. Yeah, the the Illinois tourism commercial, it, it shows a uh, Springfield, Illinois, and Abraham Lincoln's ghost like jumping out at some tourists, and I can't imagine like they they had Lincoln and I guess nothing since. <laughs> what will get people to Middle America? I don't know, Lincoln. At least Ohio has like five presidents for some reason. I'm sorry to any Ohioans out there. I respect your state and the five presidents and whatever else you've contributed to U.S. Uh, history. I, on the other hand, don't. <laughs> I don't think you all comprise a very high number of our audience members so i, I can safely say that mm-hmm. <laughs> i've got to walk a fine line as the coastal elite here whereas yeah right. matt is also the coastal elite but i mean no not to throw no. you under the well, bus here but you are from florida so it's i don't think anyone includes florida in the coastal elite typically <laughs> <laughs> no they don't uh, <laughs> I, i'm more of a swamp elite mm-hmm. that's right <laughs> mm-hmm. anyways welcome on into our little podcast <laughs> uh tipsy tolstoy the center of the disaster maybe that should be our slogan that should be it's a podcast this is me and my good pal Cameron, and we like to unwind from our weeks by talking about some Russian literature and taking a drink or two while we do it. This fine evening, we're going to continue our journey through Tolstoy's War and Peace, which if you are on episode three, you probably know that already. But in case you didn't, we are tackling part three of book one. We are, we got a, we got a juicy one for you today. This was a great, a great part. <laughs> I know part one is all about peace, part two is mm-hmm. all about war, and now it's time to bring them together. Well, kind of. Kind of. Well, they they happen in the same part. 
They happen in the same part, but this one is more about sending Tolstoy to horny jail. <laughs> That's, we'll talk about that one in a little bit. Unfortunately. Uh, for now, we want to remind you all that this series is only possible because of the support of our generous listeners who chip in a little bit every month at Tipsy Tolstoy, excuse me, at patreon.com slash Tipsy Tolstoy. And as a thank you to all of them, we're going to be hosting a monthly Patreon-only reading group to discuss more of the important passages we didn't get to cover in our episode. If you want to get the most out of this series and our podcast, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy if you're not interested in patreon but still want to help us out you can leave us a nice review on apple podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com and you can actually have your review featured on our instagram now i've started a new segment called five star fyodor where <laughs> i will take reviews that i think are funny and also that give us five stars hence the name and i'll put a little uh, instagram post for you so it's, it's pretty fun there we go you can get involved yeah. too if that doesn't entice you, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, yes, that is true. Uh, before we get into talking about war, peace, horny jail, mm-hmm. Matt, I got to ask you, what are you drinking today? Well, as you all know, I'm on that uh, non-alcoholic bender, as I'm describing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting into the non-alcoholic spirits now, which as I described to Cameron before the show, it's basically just flavored water, but a little bit bitter, I guess. I am... Tonight drinking, I actually like it. I, I poke fun, but I like it. I'm drinking a brand called Seedlip. It's a non-alcoholic spirit. The spirit is called Grow 42. It has distilled citrus botanicals. And it's uh it's it's a pretty one. I got it in my fancy boy glass. I mixed it with some uh I've mixed it with some elderflower tonic water. And I, for the first time in so so long in this podcast, actually have a good drink. There you go. And it's it's nice, herbal, refreshing. Yeah. For it, all, it all really of our is abstaining akhmatavas out there that's right that's, that's right, right. <laughs> you can be an abstaining akhmatava and still have fun baby what what have you got on the other side of on the other side of town there sure so mine's a little harder to get uh definitely if you are everyone try the drinks we have to recommend mats this week uh because i for christmas i got uh, for my sister a beers of the world pack and Ooh. to my immense delight i found in the pack i didn't get one a no oh, well, well yours is still in the mail <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she, she asked me to pass on her apologies to you about not, you know, getting it before ahead of time. Sure. Sure. Um, I have a good old Cerveza Alhambra Milciento Vantai Single. My Spanish is not so good anymore. Did you study um, abroad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever brought that up before. Um, it, it's been a long time trying to erase the, the Southern Spaniard out of my, my Spanish. Anyway, so this is the, the, one of the, there's a brewing company in Southern Spain, um, Alhambra Cerveza. Alhambra beer, uh, as reference to the Alhambra, which is the town where it's brewed. And when I was living there, man, I drank so much Alhambra beer. And I was, I'm just, it's such a blast in the past to be able to have this back. I think I had it in the podcast a while back. I found it at a store, but it's not super common that I actually see it around here. So I was overjoyed and hard to find. But if you can, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great cheap beer. So, War and Peace Part Three, the end of book one of four man this it's really hard to talk about what part we're in without being confusing uh so in this one we have like we said a bit of war a bit of peace a lot of a horny jail which we'll be getting into uh before we start talking about um the actual events matt is there anything you want to touch on not really i think this is just this is just a funny part that's all <laughs> i wanted to touch on i this was i was actually laughing rereading this i think mm-hmm. this was the funniest of the three that we have read so far easily easily and i got a lot of really good quotes to discuss after the summary perfect me too so i'm ready to get into it uh let's go over pretty fast because there's a lot to get into here 
So yeah, it's not a chapter I don't think where you need to get bogged down in the specifics because there's just going to be like a lot of generals and they all have Eastern European names and you know <laughs> who cares? Yeah, um, half so, of them are going to die in like three pages, so it's like okay, just, yeah, note them, carry on. Sure. As you might recall, last time uh, I don't remember if this is how it ended, but more or less we finished up on the death of Count Bezukhov, uh, and now Pierre, who has been the inheritor of all his his goods, his possessions, his forty thousand souls, so they say, uh, is now suddenly a count, and everyone who before looked down at him or considered him annoying or is like this guy is an affront to our society, suddenly they're all very nice to him, and in fact, Count Vasily, like, excuse me, Prince Vasily. Uh, has taken over his affairs and making sure to set things in order and it says hey this is such a good thing i'm doing for you and it's noted that it's not really that he's consciously thinking about how he is making himself indebted to the new count bezukhov or pierre uh, but it's it's not he's not not thinking about it he's just not thinking about it systematically um, so one of the things that he's doing here is also trying to maneuver pierre into marrying his daughter uh yelena uh, helen helena uh, Lelia, uh, you'll see her referred to as a lot of ways. That's it's. She's the one who it's. He also will not stop talking about how beautiful she is, which is part yeah. of. Yeah. He's he's doing a little bit more than maneuver, and I'd say she is she is quite literally backing it up in this part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is yeah, yeah. So after uh, also as as after he gets Pierre to kind of pay off everyone involved in the affair, in the embarrassing affair, of Bezukhov's death to avoid any issues. To the tune of some number of thousands of rubles, they they move him from um, from Moscow to Petersburg society as they're preparing his house for him to move into, and he Pierre is staying with Count Vasily. He's going to a lot of soirees where suddenly he is you know a, a valued guest, and also at one of these soirees uh, at Anna Pavlovna, who you may recall as the the woman whose soiree we open the book on, he suddenly they, she kind of brings him and Helena together. And as they're talking, he's always been told that uh, she's beautiful. And he always agrees like, yes, yes, yes she's very beautiful. Um, now, I forget the exact circumstances, but she they lean in close to discuss something or so we can see something. And he begins to notice how close he is to her. And ooh, we get a real extended monologue about him thinking about her body. And it's real uncomfortable to read. Um, didn't like it. Didn't like it. I don't like it whenever Tolstoy gets horny. Didn't care for it one little bit. Nope. <clears throat> will not be reading any particular quotes unless you would like to discuss the match because I don't want to think about Tolstoy being horny, but it is it is like maybe one or two descript like a little more if it was only slightly more particular, I'd be like, well, this is like old erotica. It's <laughs> yeah. just like just yeah. just just far enough enough away from that that it's not but anyway. In the coming month, it's very clear that everyone kind of expects them to get married, <laughs> which Pierre is like very neither here nor there about. And it all comes to a head at one final dinner before Prince Vasily goes to the provinces to take care of his estates, as well as to try to marry his son Anatoly to the uh, the daughter of Prince Bolkonsky. Um, and they have this big dinner and everyone's like, you know, isn't this so cool? They're going to get married. They're all watching the dinner, watching the two and the two are you know, Helena and, and Pierre just basically sitting there in silence. Everyone retires, they go away. Everyone commenting on how amazing this marriage is going to be as the two of them continue to say nothing about it, uh, discuss things in the corner. And then eventually after much, yeah, Vasily and the other members who are still remaining kind of like, oh, what are they doing? What are, what are they getting up to? Finally rush into the room and congratulate the two of them on their marriage when... Uh, they did it. They did it, sitting there quietly. <laughs> 
Uh, and within a month, Pierre is now suddenly married. Um, and, you know, well, Pierre and Helena are both married and they have this amazing, so we're told, life. Um, and we'll talk about his very positive reaction to this later. He's so helpless, but he is really probably the funniest character in the book because he's the main character to which things just kind of happen to. Yep. He, he doesn't cause anything to happen. Things really only happen to him. And it's entertaining. Uh, speaking of, it's, it's just a slight note. There's nowhere, I'm not, I don't think we're going to take this anywhere, but it's just something that I, I cannot let go of. And as we talked about earlier, we really need to institute a Sweet Home Alabama meter um, <laughs> because there's a point when Pierre is thinking about the really thing about Helena and what he thinks of her. And at some point in the middle of a lot of other the thoughts, he notes like, oh, well, Helena is so beautiful. But there was that rumor about Anatoly, her brother, being in love with her and her being in love with him. And, you know, surely, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe in another book, I'd be like, well, that's just salacious society rumor. But uh, coming from Mr. Cousinhood is a dangerous territory. I'm not putting anything past Tolstoy right now. <laughs> so, I don't know what to do with that. I just... Mm. Arrested Development could never. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad we can't change our theme music to the to the Arrested Development music uh, for Maybe various we reasons. Yeah, well, look into the copyright. I'm sure it's not that expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so following that, after the marriage, um, Vasily goes into the provinces to take care of his estates and as well as as get his son to try to marry uh, Prince Balkonsky's daughter, uh, Princess Mar Maria. And um, as soon as... Uh, Prince Balkonsky gets the letter from Vasily, noting that he's coming to meet him. It's it, first of all, Balkonsky is pissed. He does not like Vasily, and ever since uh, he's been maneuvering in society as of late, he gets the sense that Vasily is just trying to get ahead and does not respect him, and uh, is in fact quite mad about this whole thing. And it's instantly obvious to everyone in the room, as the letter's being read, that uh, Vasily is coming to try to marry his son Anatoly to um, Balkonsky's daughter Maria. Things are, are not going great at the estate Bald Hills. Um, the as we you may recall, Prince Andre's wife, uh, the pregnant as, as she's often called the little princess or, or Lisa. Uh, she lives in fear of Prince Balkonsky. He is, as you probably recall, not a very nice man. Uh, he is pretty bad father. Pretty bad. Pretty awful father. Probably worst father of the year. Yeah, is I think what his mug says. Um, and I think he would be proud of that for some reason. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it said of, of their relationship, the little princess lived at Ballshild under a constant feeling of fear and antipathy for the old prince, though she was not aware of the antipathy because the fear was so predominant that she could not feel it. On the prince's <laughs> side, there was also antipathy, but it was smothered with contempt. Uh, so not great relationship there. No. And as, as they begin to arrive, Princess Maria is, is kind of excited because she's, as Tolstoy will not let us forget, not very attractive and she's not had a lot of suitors. And so Madame uh, Borienne, who is their, their sort of French maid helper, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I have her exact title in the household, but uh, she just like is there sort of helps them out with whatever they want. Um, and they, they get ready for, for his approach. And uh, Vasily comes, and again, Balkonsky is even more mad when he arrives. And Anatoly, who is, uh, you know, handsome, but as it's repeatedly hit home, not very smart. Uh, as, as, as evidenced by when they arrived and Balkonsky asked him, so where are you serving? And Anatoly has to turn to his father and ask him in what regiment he's serving in. <laughs> <laughs> Notably, Anatoly had just been picked up from this regiment by his father to come here. So uh, as they arrived, you know, Maria is really excited to meet him. She's getting ready. And this is a bit older or a bit of a longer thing, but I, I like really cannot get over how much Tolstoy is just like, you really have to 
will not let up on on on, on Maria not being attractive. Um, so no, in this scene, not. um, Madame Bourienne and Lisa, the little princess are trying to dress her for her meeting with Anatoly. Uh, and it said she flushed, her beautiful eyes faded, her face became covered with blotches. And with that unattractive expression of a victim, which most often lingered on her face, she gave herself into the power of Madame Bourienne and Lisa. The two women concerned themselves in all sincerity with, uh, making her beautiful. She was so plain that the thought of rivalry with her did not occur to either of them. They therefore undertook to dress her up in all sincerity with that naive and firm conviction of women that clothes can make a face beautiful. No, really, ma, uh, ma bon ami, this dress won't do, Lisa said, looking sideways at the princess from a distance. Have them bring the maroon one you've got there. Really? Why, this may just be the deciding of your fate in life. And this too, this is too light. It won't do. No, it won't do. What would not do was not the dress, but the face and whole figure of the princess. But neither Madame Bourienne nor the little princess sensed that. It seemed to them that if a blue ribbon was put in the hair, done up high, and a blue scarf hung down in the brown dress, and so on, all would be well. They forgot that the frightened face and figure could not be changed, and therefore, no matter how they changed the frame and decoration of that face, the face itself remained pitiful and unattractive. So Pretty brutal. Yeah, that's not even the end of that. It goes for like another page. Yeah, it really did. Um, so I don't have anywhere to go with that. That's just Tolstoy will not let you forget. They they go and have their meeting, and all three of the the young women are entranced with Anatoly, who was hot but not smart. And Anatoly very um, is well. He he looks at Maria and says, "Well, she's not very attractive, but she's pretty rich, so that's cool." But he's really into Madame Bourienne, who is in fact very attractive. Such that the next day when um, when Maria goes to her father, Balkonsky, and he says, hey, look, he's proposed marriage or uh, Vasily has proposed Anatoly marry you. Uh, but, you know, I hold to the belief that it's your right to choose, which is apparently the only good thing he really has going for him as a father. You make you give it a couple hours and then come here and tell me what you think. And as she leaves, she happens to find uh, Madame Borian in Anatoly's arms. Uh, they run off and then becomes a whole thing where she goes and tells Vasily and her father that she does not want to marry Anatoly and instead resolves that although she would like she would like to seek earthly happiness, as she talks about much in this passage, she decides uh, she's going to choose a godlier way and instead of choosing her own earthly happiness, seek a godly happiness and try to find happiness for her friend slash servant, um, Madame Borian, which is where I leave that scene. Uh, and following that, we go to Ripley, the Rostovs, who received news of their son, Nikolai, who you might recall last time was wounded in battle. They sent him a lot of letters and 6,000 rubles, from which point we go to out in, in Austria at this point, following up on their defeats, uh, some victories. And Nikolai receives this letter. He goes to his friend Boris to go pick up the letters and the rubles, and a lot of things are going on. The long and short of what happens in this scene is that the emperor and the both the, the czar and the Austrian emperor are here to oversee the battles after some recent victories. And you know, while they're while they're getting ready for these battles, Nikolai sees the emperor or the czar and is entranced. He's like fallen in love and he's watching the emperor. He thinks, I would like love to die for this man. I could think of no better fate than to die in his service. And he begins to fantasize about not just you know, killing a, a French officer in his presence, but rather, you know, slapping the man and delivering some kind of speech that will bring the emperor's respect or something, you know, similar to uh, the uh, imaginings of Pierre earlier in this book. Uh, Tolso is not very kind of women in his book. However, I find he does capture imaginative young men fairly well. It makes sense, I guess, for him as a writer. 
as 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 they're getting ready, um, you know, Nikolai he's not seen Boris in many months, and uh, they they have a conversation while they're while they're there, and uh, they have an argument. In fact, where one of the things that the Nikolai's family sends him is a letter to become part of the staff officers or the, like the team of staff officers, and he says, you know, I'm not going to be anyone's lackey. I'm here to make my own fate. And Boris kind of takes offense to this, saying like, okay, well, you got a family that will send you six thousand rubles at a time. I can't. I don't have anyone like that. I need to go find myself a staff position. So he goes off and finds their, his friend, Prince Andre, uh, the son of, of Prince Balkonsky to go help him place. And there's a whole politics. The army continues from here for, for some time until we get to the actual coming battle itself. At this point, uh, the assumption of the Austrians and many of the Russian generals is that the uh, French and Napoleon are retreating, that they are no longer there, that they are on their hunt, like final legs. And they put forth a battle plan, which more or less relies on that assumption. Now, there are a couple among uh, this group, notably uh, General Kutuzov, who don't think that's the case and object to it, but they're totally overruled. And they, you know, they go forth in the battle and they, get, they march forward and they're ready for a glorious victory. Nikolai, you know, the night before, although he sees the French lighting fires and notes that to some generals, they kind of overlook it and they're like, well, that's just them trying to trick us. Um, and, and Nikolai says, OK, great, perfect. I can't wait to fight them in battle tomorrow. Uh, however, in the next morning, when they are marching out, we note that Napoleon's watching them from the distance and is completely calm and so noted that, well, they're more or less doing what he guessed they were going to do and has his troops go into action. So as the Russians and the Austrians and some number of Czech and Polish soldiers are getting ready, the French appear a mile and a half forward of where they're supposed to be and they begin to charge. And almost immediately, the I think it's the left flank, which is where General Kutuzov is, immediately breaks and they begin running. And in an attempt to... Uh, rally the troops. Kutuzov turns to Andre or Prince Andre and says, "Look, do something." And Andre picks up the the fallen standard, uh, the you know the flag of the regiment of uh, the soldier carrying has been killed, and begins to rush forward. And some number of troops follow him as they rush towards the embattled artillery. And as he runs forward, he suddenly feels like he's been hit in the head, and he falls to the ground. And wondering why he can't get up, stares at the sky and kind of passes out. At the same time, Nikolai is sent to this side of the battle, the right flank, is, has not encountered the French yet. And as he's going there, we see scenes of battle of soldiers running away, of dead and wounded and Nikolai's fears until finally he finds the czar who's supposed to deliver a message to, but he's so self-conscious that he can't do it and he walks away um, and then goes to basically sit among the dead and wounded, not sure what to do next. And in our last chapter of uh, closing out, this book one, we come back to Prince Andre as he lies in the field dying, and uh, Napoleon comes out to survey his victory much later in the day, and, and stands over Andre and says, "Ah, fine death." Uh, but Andre, in his in, as he lays there, coughs, and Napoleon realizes he's alive and sends him to the medic before later coming out to come back to him because he's surveying all his captured officers, um, and he stands before him and kind of induces. Uh, Prince Andre to say something. And then for so long, Prince Andre has looked up to Napoleon. He's wanted to meet him. This is his hero. This is the man who's changing things. And as he stares at him, he can't muster up the feeling to say anything, not because he's afraid, but because he now sees Napoleon as a petty man. And as he was lying in the field, there could be seen nothing better than the sky and gentleness. And now that he looks at him, Napoleon is not a, a mythic figure like he imagined, but just a petty man coming to see a uh, small victory and something that he doesn't care about in the in the light of the great clouds he was looking at as he laid in the field as he passes into a fever 
uh, after Napoleon leaves, he begins to dream of life back at Bald Hills, of his wife, of his unborn son, of his father, and a quiet family life there. And that's as he as he as handed off to some locals to deal with him as he's uh, unconscious and feverish. That's where we leave uh, the end of book one. And we did it. And we did it. A fourth-ish of the way through? Just about. Just about. Um, so, there's a lot to... There's, there's a quick summary. A lot happened here. Is there anywhere in particular you want to start? I will start at the beginning, I think. Sounds like a plan. There's a lot to unpack in this chapter, to put it lightly. <laughs> I saw a few connections to Anna Karenina and a few other connections even to Stalingrad, sure. which we... Of course, just finished reading for the podcast not too long ago. And if you haven't listened to that series, you might be interested if you're enjoying War and Peace. So not to start on Stalingrad, I'll start with Anna Karenina. Prince Vasily to me is Steva from Anna Karenina. There's just so many characteristics, mostly the fact that he is bad at everything. <laughs> like he's good right. at doing bad things is what he's good at. Mm -hmm. He's not good at doing anything good. Um, and I don't mean doing things well. I mean, he doesn't do anything morally good throughout the entirety of the story. And where I really see this connection is in the sort of intentionality of it, which is what I think a really big part of it is for Tolstoy. So this quote that you started to mention, it goes, Prince Vasily was not a man who deliberately thought out his plans. Still less did he think of harming anyone in order to gain his own ends. He was simply a man of the world who had got on into whom getting on had become a habit. Various plans and schemes for which he never rightly accounted to himself, but which constituted his whole interest in life, were continually forming in his mind, arising from the circumstances and the persons he met. And it goes on to describe how he doesn't, you know, he's not deliberately using people for his own gain. That's not what he's necessarily setting out to do it's something that just kind of happens to him as he stumbles through life which maybe that is how he views what it is he's doing i think it probably is i think it's his perspective on the life that he leads but to me this is just echoes of steva from anna Karenina all over and it really brings up this question pretty early on in the book that i think we will get to more later is is evil always a deliberate act that somebody does does somebody always set out to do evil can evil be something that kind of just happens by circumstance and how do we perceive it that's another question that i've started to sort of note on this second part and i have some things to back it up but i'll just br briefly put it out there that there's a sort of lack of perception of people in this family when they're in rooms. There's all this commentary on people not really being able to see them. And this goes into some, uh, well, there's a lot of people that have conceptualized evil as a lack of goodness or an absence of goodness or just kind of an absence in general. And you can do some more reading on that if that sounds interesting. Many people smarter than me have written on that. But what I noticed as someone who just likes to read is that Tolstoy is writing this family in this way that very deliberately shows that they have this sort of absence that can be associated with evil. 
And it's much different, I think, than how you would maybe normally think about somebody being evil. Uh, we like to, I think, it's something to me that can be learned from Tolstoy and can be applied to now, which is that evil isn't just like <laughs> a Nazi. There are more levels of evil, and it's not always clear that it is something that you are doing that could be evil. There is something to be kind of gleaned, I think, from Prince Vasily, because it's a characteristic that a lot of people uh, kind of can pick up along the way in life, I think. To very, very badly butcher one of Kant's imperatives to treat people as ends in and of themselves, the entire family is very much treats people instru you know, instrumentally. That Vasily, to, like, to your point, everyone around him, even his own kids are people who are not pawns. He doesn't think of them that way necessarily, but that's what he does, even if he's like a likable person in and of himself. And, sorry, uh, Kat. <laughs> is decided that she would like to hang out. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun for you to edit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, for example, when he's talking to his daughter at one point, it's noted that he addressed his daughter in the careless tone of habitual tenderness, which is adopted by parents who have been affectionate with their children since childhood, but with which Prince Vasily only approximated by means of imitating other parents. And paying attention to how parents treat their kids is something I've been, I've been noting a lot as we go through here. Mm -hmm. Oh, for example, of like compared to Balkonsky, who is... A, a bad like i'm not gonna make any bones about it. he's a bad father he's like a really shitty person to maria you you also i would give him the credit of giving maria agency over her marriage and he's like whatever i'll give you my opinion but it's up to you whereas vasily is kind of like he doesn't say his daughter has to marry pierre but it's there by implication that she should marry pierre um such that you know their marriage declared without pierre or helena uh them both uh, acknowledge never acknowledging him Right, like doing that, or Helena. Not it's we don't really get as much into her internal life, which based on how much we hear about her body, like shocker that Tolstoy doesn't give her any internality in, in, in a, uh, internality, at least not internality. What's it? Interiority, at least at least yet in the book. Um, but you know, when we go to Anatoly, for example, he when he's meeting Maria and Madame Borian, he's like, oh well, you know, Maria isn't much of a looker, but she's pretty rich. But man. Uh, Phil surely take Madame Borian with us. You know, it's a family of people, at least at least father and son, who see people instrumentally. <laughs> You'll get more interiority of her later, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. There's definitely more scenes where she's kind of involved in. But yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. Uh, speaking of, do you, want to, do you mind if we move over to Pierre and Helena's relationship for a second? I would really love to. <laughs> so it's i know we, we went over it very briefly and kind of portrayed it as something that just kind of happens but it's something that just kind of happens and it should be noted the characters are aware that it's just kind of happening or at the very least we are getting this mostly from pierre's perspective who is very aware that it's just kind of happening to what like what matt said about things just happening to pierre i just i guess i should clarify like i don't know that it's things that are necessarily happening to pierre or if that is the way the narrator frames Pierre's perspective where it seems like things are just happening to him because he acknowledges that he knows he's doing something that's going to cause people to feel the certain way. And he has actually a very good sense at this point that what he's doing is causing people to look at him a certain way. And therefore he feels that sort of obligation. And, you know, if he was a little more active, he could have kind of 
got himself out of the situation before he was in too deep. Yeah, but he doesn't. But he doesn't. And, as and that's it, fun for us. So. <laughs> when he's when he's sitting at the dinner table before they're, he and Helena are pronounced married, you know, he's already kind of aware that they're basically they're going to be pronounced married soon or he should say, well, I'm kind of your fiance now. Right. And he thinks all of this had to be so and could not be otherwise. Therefore, there's no point in asking whether it's good or bad. It's good because it's definite. And there's no more of that old tormenting doubt. <laughs> um, and like, later on, he thinks, uh, it's too late now. It's all over. And anyway, I love her, thought Pierre, which is definitely what you want to, definitely how you want to approach a marriage. Um, I'm not a marriage counselor, but yeah, uh, I've never been married. But I'm assuming that's, I'm assuming that's only the best way to approach thoughts of marriage. You know, I've been having this discussion in our Discord <clears throat> link in the show notes if you want it and you you don't want this discussion but you might want our discord i don't know i've been having this discussion on which weezer album <laughs> tolstoy's characters would respond to and i gotta go publicly on record with my boldest claim which is that pierre is absolutely pinkerton era weezer and now this joke is gonna land for maybe like one person <laughs> in our audience but for that one person <laughs> i want you to know i see you and Pierre also sees you. And Tolstoy also, it confirms my suspicion that he was Pinkerton Weezer too. <laughs> and so I've just got some thoughts on that. So find me in Discord. As a non-Weezer listener, is Pinkerton kind of the flop era with the Maligned album? Well, it's kind of the beloved flop era. Interesting. Okay. You know, it, it flopped at the time, but it's become kind of a, an emo precursor that's been almost reclaimed, even though it has some problematic moments. All right. Fair enough. Now, whether Pierre is reclaimed or not, I don't know. But sometimes I, I I look at those lyrics and I think, wow, Pierre probably could have read this if he wasn't a Russian aristocrat. So it's just my ploy to get Rivers Cuomo on the podcast. All right. Well, we'll keep on trying. We'll keep on trying. We're on TikTok now, so I think he's on TikTok too. I've been told. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's things happen to him and he doesn't question it too much. To back away from the marriage real quickly, after... He is being ingratiated and like you know, newly ingratiated to society in Moscow. It's noted that everyone puts a lot of effort into convincing him that he was very sad about his father dying, who he again barely knew. And you know, now they're suddenly his friends, and he thinks it's so natural that they should like him that he doesn't really question why they're suddenly so nice to him. So he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of mm, critical thought about the position he now occupies in society, whether that be because of his money and the way people treat him for it or because or in relation to his marriage other than the fact that he's like and i think we, we mentioned this briefly but i should say that him being horny for helena is not one thing like that's an ongoing you you hear a lot about her body from 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 pierre and it's real uncomfortable yeah like if this was written now i'd be like come on dude really like i've read i've read authors who write right like that and it's like really and it's even stranger when you hear it from tolstoy yeah i i think for pierre it's kind of um he already has this realization that he doesn't really want to be married to her he just thinks that she's attractive and that's his dilemma in much fewer and less horny words but then you also see right after they kiss where pierre says that he's shocked by the change in her face by its unpleasantly abandoned expression and I note here that this is the first sort of indication of absence that's noted in the Kuragan children. And so I, this, is, this, is my, this is my working theory on this family. And I'm paying more and more attention to how the families are connected and what sort of strands 
unite them? Like what characteristics, what do they say that makes them family in, in the writing? And this is one of them abandoned expressions and absence and like not being visible. This is all something that can characterize them. So if you find any other ones that I don't mention on the podcast, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> something to keep it, pay it, keep paying attention to. Maybe it's not that important, but I found it. <laughs> can we talk about Balkonsky for like a minute? Let's talk about Balkonsky. Now, I realize that he is probably the meanest character in the novel. And there is probably a whole horde of Twitter psychologists that would just have an absolute field day writing like clickbait threads to get you to click on about this. Uh, about about him and the various syndromes that he can have. However, the fact that he wanted Prince Vasily to not visit him so bad that he had his servants shovel the snow <laughs> back onto the pathway that they had already <laughs> shoveled off for him, just so he would have to drive his his whole his whole entourage through the snow path. Absolute W. <laughs> 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 yeah uh, there's a lot of moments where he's like obviously kind of a terrible person but he gets lots of he gets lots of dubs like when he's like anatoly is so stupid my daughter is you know even though he treats her horribly he's like yeah my daughter is so much better than him why do why do we why must young women be married off in such a fashion anyway you know not he's not thinking about but for their own agency but he's like this whole system is stupid you know whatever it's her choice but you know if it was up to me you know no one need to be married off in such a fashion He's probably the best judge of character that we've seen so far. <laughs> yeah. But then, like, he doesn't like Prince Vasily, and he's absolutely right for not liking him. He knows that Anatoly's looking at the maid. Like, the first step in the room, he thinks, well, he's going to bang the maid. <laughs> and he almost does. But also, as a side point, this is, like, I think his one moment of being, a well, not a good parent, but a sympathetic father at all is when he is talking to Maria about her, like, it's your decision, whatever. He's like, yeah, if you want to go and marry it, you know, you can, um, you know, go off and take Madame Borean with you and she'll be his wife. And then he sees that she, like, that Mar Maria reacts badly to that. And he's like, sorry, that was a bad joke. But Maria later acknowledges that he was basically correct in his, in that, you know, it, it was like a bad joke of him correctly analyzing what anatoly actually is interested in here i don't see i don't think he's being sympathetic i think he's trying to torment her however he's right he's right anybody apologizes after he sees that she doesn't like it which is like i think the only oh, time but not really it's <laughs> you can yeah you can read into it your love varying levels of genuineness but like yeah he's to your point about him being a, a good judge he's the only one everyone else is indebted to court society and looking in, in caring about their positions and who's related to whom and who has money and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. what is that what's that bowling for soup song high school never ends except it's the russian sure. the russian aristocracy never ends no yeah, no it, it did yeah. actually well, pretty violently did, but, but. <laughs> it did pretty violently yeah it's very pretty famously it ended not well for the aristocracy um yeah i think bowling for soup had to cut that out of that song <laughs> <laughs> and just as a note about Mar maria i think it's uh she gets a lot of time to herself to discuss first of all that she's as you mentioned before very religious and says is mostly concerned with doing right by god first of all but then she's secret in her heart of hearts she wants the earthly delights of a of a marriage and kids and, and you know what tolstoy imagines all women want i imagine 
Well, I don't have to imagine. We can read his later works. Um, <laughs> sure. That that's what he thinks. But, uh, you know, later on when it becomes clear that Antoldi really is interested in Madame Bourienne, then she's like, well, I'm going to give up my earthly desires for now and, uh, you know, pursue the happiness of my friend slash servant. I need to read the book again before I pass judgment. But there is just, I, I don't know, it's kind of, um, I think it's more of a mask. I, th- I think she uses religion as a mask for the fact that she is severely emotionally stunted by having a horrifically abusive father, which is kind of the great sadness of the whole situation. Yeah. That's my initial guess here. I could, I could scan. I mean, I've read the book already, but it's been like <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about through the Bolkonski slash Karagin situation or should we move on to not really war? anything major just my again hammering home of absence when Anatoly approaches Princess Maria she says that she still could not see him it's mentioned so many so many so many times and I think you're supposed to think like oh she thinks he's so attractive which she does but I think that that's that's not doing her justice <laughs> I, I think yeah there's more to it than than that so just something to know and to follow right okay warfare we have our favorite our favorite pair of friends we did peace now we do war now we do war we've got nikolai we've got boris we got prince andre kudazov and so let's start off with the relationship between nikolai and boris if that works for you sure does Cool, because there is, well, so they become, at least for me, maybe more so it's like the di- the dichotomy here is, is more so between Nikolai and Prince Andre. But Nikolai is, you know, he's he was the student who decided to volunteer for the army, totally not because his best buddy Boris decided to get it go. No, sorry, it was, yeah, it was Boris, because his best bud Boris decided to, to go into the Hussars. Well, decided, because Prince Vasily helped him place in the, in the Hussars. But, um... He is he is ready to go to war. He is ready to fight. He's ready to die when he sees the czar. He is described as repeatedly in love with the czar. He's ready to, he's imagining having moments of fitful emotion and, you know, not even, not even, he's like, he's ready to kill, but that's not really what he was about. He wants to slap a soldier. He wants to show offense and he wants to show his intellectual domination over the enemy in front of the czar. He wants to be not just a tough soldier. He wants to be someone who the emperor would keep close and he's ready to do nothing more than die in the face of the emperor um whereas a lot of the other characters i mean andre we'll talk more about how he's his relation to the death and his own family um, <laughs> but you know and he's he's nikolai is is very naive and pure in that sense when he you know his family's like oh you should go to the general staff where it's less dangerous you've been wounded already here's a recommendation letter for uh general bagration and he says, I don't need Binion's lackey. <laughs> you know, in, in, in the next scene, Boris is riding away thinking angrily, like, how could he just throw that away? Maybe a family that will send you thousands of rubles. That's something you can just give up. But, you know, the rest of us, well, we have to pay our bills more or less. So I don't know if I have too much beyond just the setting up Nikolai as a character who, at least in this part, is very, you know, is a young man in love with his czar, ready to fight, ready to die. No matter what the situation. I think there's two comparisons to draw. The obvious one is the Nikolai Boris comparison or the differences between them. Which to me, again, they literally are just modeling the behavior of their parents. Boris is doing exactly what he didn't like 
when his mom was doing it <laughs> on his behalf and now he's just doing it for himself, which I realize is supposed to be shown as kind of the lesser of the two approaches, but I get what he's saying. You know, if you don't come from a rich family, that's just putting the bill for, I, I mean, 6,000 rubles is a ton of money. That's like a lot of money now. It, I can't even imagine <laughs> how much that was back then. If somebody sent me 6,000 rubles, like, you know how many beers 6,000 rubles could buy in Russia? A lot of beers. That's not the point. The point is, I, I get that he's, this is the behavior that he's kind of exhibiting. And Nikolai, I understand why he's doing what he's doing as well when he's kind of telling these war stories to Boris and the exaggeration that sort of unintentionally seeps into his story, which is, if you read any story that has anything to do with war by Tolstoy, he always talks about how it sort of gets to be exaggerated and he loves to build that up in comparison with the actual battle, which, as we will see later, is always a complete disaster and just complete chaos and no one's really a hero by choice, only maybe by coincidence. <laughs> right. It wasn't, I think what it's read said about, um, about to, to your point, when um, Nicholas sits down to talk about the battle, the Sean Graben action in the last part, uh, he told Boris and uh, another comrade of this Berg, told him about the Sean Graben action and just the way that hoes who take part in battle usually tell them. That is that they tell them in the ways that they would have liked them to have happened, the way they have heard others tell it, and the ways that it could be told more beautifully, but not at all the way it act had actually been. Yeah, he's, I mean, basically his father at a dinner party. He wants to be the center of attention. And so you have a direct comparison. He is very much like his father. But then I think the less obvious comparison is him and Princess Maria. I think there is a comparison to be drawn there between war and peace and when we're talking about love and attraction and if i can assume the sort of stereotypical approach that one might you would maybe expect that princess maria right would have this more emotional uh more emotionally charged sort of scene between her and anatoly and that's of course destroyed by his actions which are pretty bad but you get way more of this from Nikolai thinking about the czar. I mean, pages and pages and pages. Princess Maria just thinks like, yes, this guy's attractive. I would have kids with him. A little bit more flowery language. Sure. Nikolai is like, I would throw myself into a burning fire <laughs> with everybody from France if it would just make this man smile. <laughs> it's the most dramatic, over-the-top, just crazy feelings jammed into like a bunch of pages and spread throughout uh, the latter half of this sort of part that we're on and so I, I think there's this right emotional connection between war and peace and it's different than you would expect i think that's where it's what it's supposed to highlight uh i think uh, do you mind if we move on to? I want to talk about that theme, which I've been thinking about a lot, a lot ever since you mentioned is the like the place between uh, the so-called great men of history and the way history really is formed. Sure. Because I just a transition here. So you know, obviously Nikolai is obsessed with the emperor and would do anything for him. And I think at some point the the battle that happens here is is uh, somewhat laconically referred to as the battle of three emperors between Napoleon, the Tsar, and the Austrian emperor. So. 
it's technically them, but also, I mean, Napoleon is the most active out of the three of them. The other three emperors, for the most part, their their position is really just ordering the troops forward, watching the troops. Um, when Kutuzov is, for example, you know, they're preparing for a, a you know to fight the French troops, which they believe that are are you know more or less a reserve force after a retreat. Uh, Kutuzov is getting his troops in place, and the Tsar comes up and says, "Hey, why aren't you advancing? Why aren't you fighting?" And Kutuzov says, "Well, I mean, I haven't gotten all my troops in place yet." And the Tsar is like, "This isn't Tsaritsyn Field, you know. I'm not ready to go to parade rest. Go fight." And then Kutuzov says, "Well, it's exactly why we're not at parade rest. Why I'm waiting for my troops so I can carry out the plan." Um, and then you know is overruled by the emperor. Uh, but despite all spending so much time with the plans of generals and the desires of emperors. What happens is the French emerge because of Napoleon's scheming to a degree, much forward from where they're expected to be. And instantly all the many pages, probably 20 something pages of planning, getting ready, just thrown into the, just thrown into the pyre of history as the French and Austria or the, the Russian and Austrian troops panic and run and destroys the whole thing. Um, and, and, you know, there are many, the, all the scheming of the great men is just put to rest by the some, one guy yelling, They've got us now and pretty much throwing a cog into the wheel. So I don't even think it was, I, I think the main part of it wasn't even that Napoleon did anything good. It was the fact that the way the fog was arranged on the battlefield, the Russian and Austrian troops couldn't see anything, but Napoleon could see exactly where they were moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, oh, sorry, I, I found the, the quote I was talking about, the so-called Battle of Three Embers. As in a clock, the result of a complex movement of numberless wheels and pulleys is merely the slow and measured movement of the hands pointing to the time, so also the result of all complex human movements of these 160,000 Russians and French, all the passions, desires, regrets, humiliations, sufferings, bursts of pride, fear, rapture, was merely the loss of the Battle of Austerlitz, the so-called Battle of Three Emperors, that is, a slow movement of the world historical hand on the clock face of human history. I don't know if I had too much beyond that point. Just uh, the, 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 as will be hammered really home by Prince Andre's encounter with Napoleon, uh, the, the pettiness and smallness and um, of great so-called great men in the face of history itself and the way it's made. Um, also contrasting against the way that those individual men who make history or people who make history conceive of those so-called great men. Case in point, Nikolai. Yeah, it is. I think the watch face is is a good comparison because, like, if you ask somebody what time it is to generally give you an hour, maybe some minutes, nobody would tell you the seconds. But really, the seconds are what make up everything else, and it continues to go further and further and further down. And I think you're right that that's what he's trying to sort of hammer home because when you try to conceive of a plan of war. Right, we didn't really talk about this disposition that they had created at the War Council, which was this ridiculously long thing that people were like falling asleep while they were reading about how the battle was exactly going to unfold. And the problem with that is you start kind of from the hour hand, you start from the top down. It's impossible to start from the bottom up because you have no way of knowing these sort of minuscule things and how they're going to relate to each other when one starts to impact another in a way that you didn't expect. And it might not just be fog, it might be something else. And that's what can kind of end up being really decisive. So the more that you plan, the worse that it goes. <laughs> and it made me think, I can't remember what the term was in Stalingrad when they're trying to think of, maybe it's like dynamic troop movement, fluid troop movement. I can't think of exactly what it is, but sort of the idea that troops are supposed to 
respond to their <laughs> surroundings. And I, I think here the worst thing they could have done was attack. If they had just waited, they probably could have won. They could have had certainly a different outcome. Speaking of Stalingrad, you mentioned you wanted to bring some of that in as well. Is there anything in particular you wanted to highlight? I don't want to go too much into it just because it's not the the main gist of you know this series but there was a little bit on troop movement and then a little bit on the uh the grain of sand and the insignificance there's this quote that says every general and soldier felt his own insignificance was conscious of being a grain of sand in that sea of men and at the same time felt his own might being conscious of himself as a part of that great whole and i think there's a reason that war and peace was read in the soviet union it's not just the story of great military victory but it's also a story of right the everyday common soldier these sort of common small whatever kind of actions that make you think how could you write a whole novel based on these things and that's what's important to tolstoy and i think that that's also really what's important to grossman and that sort of kind of forms a sense of nationality as well or not just nationality but a sense of community maybe more broadly so it's it's important. It's an important point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of. I don't know if this is entirely related, but speaking to like the the places of the individual, I, I think Grossman is much more interested in the actual stories of indi- individual people, mm-hmm. uh, getting into the vignettes of probably individual things he saw and, and giving them to characters in Stalingrad. You do kind of get that, especially in the battle scenes, especially when things are going wrong and you get the, the yes. many men wounded or dead, or you know the scenes of retreat, which are pretty harrowing in in the same mm-hmm. way that. I was unpleasantly surprised by Tolstoy's horniness earlier. I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised by his uh, desire to you know, really show like a, a war, not just as, I mean, to, to, to an extent it's to show, you know, you know, breaking down the conceptions of these characters and you know, keep in mind that Tolstoy himself did serve uh, in the, in the military it, that it's like kind of a horrible, I mean, there's, especially during the retreat as you know, the men are being cut down. There's one particular moment when we join a group of men running from, French cannon fire and they uh, are being cut down and one, you know, you know, Dolokhov is among them and he runs into some ice and then he realizes that like they cannot support any more weight than me. And there's an officer on a horse that realizes that too. And he's about to say, Hey, don't go on the ice. But in graphic detail, it's described how a cannonball just takes this guy apart and he's nothing but yeah, a, it does. like a red mess. Sure does. And then everyone freaks out with the cannon fire and then run on and it cracks and they all begin to drown you know, running like some being cut down by cannon or musket fire, others burning onto the ice and drowning. And it's unflinching in its description of those things. So not that Tolstoy, it seems, was as interested in the individual uh, stories of people, uh, certainly the individual experiences as seen through a group are portrayed, right? I mean, that's not just like, not just that battles happen and you win or you lose. It's battles happen and then some parts of the battlefield, well, they're no longer parts of the battlefield. Either they've been advanced beyond or they've retreated or whatever, but they're still dead there. They're still wounded there. And if you don't have time to grab them, they're just sitting there, as it's as told some notes, crawling to go gather to find something, find water, find each other, find whatever. But they're left alone and presumably die there. Yeah, he writes it well. I mean... It is definitely reminiscent of some aspects of Stalingrad to me. Not as, uh, I, I don't know, I don't want to say not as grand because it was for its time. But it, it different, but similar. That's descriptive, right? That's it, very. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Or should we move on to our final big moment, which is Andre meeting Napoleon? 
Yes, let's. All right. Um, so, like you mentioned, Andre meets Napoleon by first Napoleon coming across him and declaring him a fine death and realizing he was alive and then adding him to his forces. Um, but this is where, t- like you said, I remember this last episode of the episode before that, Tolstoy, not subtle about what he's trying to tell you here in a lot of ways. <laughs> this idea of individuals and the so-called great man is hammered home. Even though Napoleon, I would say, is given a fairly... Mm, mm, up to this point a fairly like not reverential but very he's very quiet he looks upon the russian troops as the russian and austrian troops as they're approaching and you know doesn't even say anything he just holds out a glove or something similar to signal that the troops should advance and he's very dignified in the sword um but when he comes to see andre andre looks at him and sees nothing but a quote you know a petty man a petty small and significant man as he looks in his eyes yeah i think it just andre's near-death experience really did that to him yeah Kind of a turning point for him, I think. Sure. Kind of was more interested in glory and vanity and things associated with that. But after almost bleeding out on the battlefield, I think he it gives him a little bit different perspective on life. <laughs> and I, I think that just to compare the sort of vision that he sees on the edge of death, where he's able to appreciate just sort of the vastness of the universe, they kind of come back down and you see Napoleon and you're like, oh, it's just guy it's not that impressive what's well, imp- i mean the night before in the dark he's standing there and he thinks he thinks of his family he thinks of his wife he thinks of his unborn kid and he thinks i'd trade that all for a moment of glory mm-hmm. but he has that moment of glory he grabs a standard he jumps off his horse he charges the enemy he's shot down and then i mean it feels like nothing in comparison to going back home and just being a quiet mm-hmm. life i don't know it's not that deep it's pretty Tolstoy pretty much says what he means here yeah the deep part will be sort of seeing how Andre copes with it for the rest of the book. Yeah. But Napoleon's really not anything special is what we're seeing so far. You know, he's a general, he's dignified, but I mean, nothing special. Not really. <laughs> You're going to hear first, folks. Napoleon, <laughs> nothing, nothing special. special. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to touch on before we, we uh Oh, I up? am good. This was a good part. Right. I enjoyed this part a lot. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot to touch on here. I feel like the first two episodes, I think we're finally trying to find our footing, especially on themes, but now I think we're starting to bring some things home, which we'll be talking about for Forever. quite a while in the coming months. <laughs> for quite a long time. Yeah. We'll never stop. <laughs> um cool. Well, in that case, Matt, um, you know, you we don't longer have at least uh, a uh, a, a one to Yeltsin meter for you. However, what we do have mm-hmm. is a zinger yep. of the week uh, 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 section for you. So let's have to ask you, is it Matt? What is the zinger? Of well, this week? I gotta say, you stole my thunder a little bit when you <laughs> read <laughs> when you read my Prince Vasily zinger, but that's okay because it was <laughs> hilarious. So, in lieu of of that absolute zinger, because that was probably the best one, I will submit to you a small quote that we did not get to discuss but that we will be talking about in our War and Peace reading group that we're going to be running for our patrons at the end of uh, starting at the end of January. The scene between Kutuzov and the Emperor where he tries to raise concerns and the Emperor replies, my dear General, I am occupied with rice and cutlets. Look after military matters yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a zinger in a sort of 
unconnected way to Nikolai, who spent the whole mm-hmm. part fantasizing about burning alive for the czar. Yeah, yeah. Man who just wants to cry under a tree and eat cutlets. Which honestly, I respect it. That's not what life's all about. So how how are you doing over there? Uh I have I have I only had one, unfortunately, Cerveza Alhambra. 1925 sure. I'm not gonna try to stumble through spanish uh, a year again um so i'm only maybe a two but just enough just enough to, to 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 go through our complexity cool well uh matt i gotta ask you because it's part of our script although we will know what are we covering next week well it's good you asked because book two actually has five parts in it so it was gonna be maybe a little confusing if you were a silly silly fool and thought we were going one part at a time <laughs> No, no. We are reading parts one and two of book two for next episode. A little bit longer on the read side, but pretty good. And, you know, the each book ends up being about 300-ish pages, at least in my edition. So we're still kind of working around that 100 page a week an episode goal, which is what we had set out to do. And you'll get a break in the epilogues. I mean, come on, those are short-ish. They're quick-ish uh, yeah. for... War and Peace. Yeah, for War and Peace, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Pacrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Stoner Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, almost made it through in one breath, Alou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, and Madeline, and Jeff. Upon further reflection, no, I wasn't almost through it in one breath. Uh, but podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon on patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to join us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.